I want to start by asking you a question, and I don't want you to overthink it. Just give me your quick gut reaction, okay? When you look at the world around you, do you think things are generally getting better or worse? Just your quick reaction, okay? At all our locations, and even if you're watching online, hands up if you think things are generally getting better, okay? And now hands up if you think things are kind of sliding downhill. Okay, well, it's probably a bit of a split reaction. So who's right? Well, the, the answer is, I don't know. Uh, it's actually kind of a trick question. See, I wasn't trying to gain any kind of understanding about the nature of our world. I was actually trying to uncover something about the nature of our worldview. You know, what, how you answer the question says about you. It's kind of like a Rorschach test, you know, ink blots. Have you ever seen these? You know, what do you see when you look at these images? See anything at all? That last one is definitely a scary elephant, right? You know, what we see when we look at the world, it actually says something about us. You know, for example, like in this case, uh, whether we're kind of optimistic about things or whether we generally tend to be a bit more pessimistic. Now, of course, one question can't tell the whole story about you. But whether you've considered it or could put it into words, each of us has a worldview, uh, an underlying lens through which we see, experience, and interpret everything. You know, it, it exists at a level deeper than even our beliefs. It's our perception of reality. You know, It's more like our gut than our mind. And it governs everything about how we live, what we value and what we detest, how we understand right and wrong. It informs everything about how we think about everything from politics and ethics to money and morality to friendship, family, and even faith. Now, our worldview isn't genetically hardwired into us from birth. Uh, it's shaped as we develop, formed by things like our family of origin or cultural influences, major world events and life experiences, even the songs, symbols, and stories that begin to seep into our sense of identity. As we get older, you know, outside of some uh, really, truly life-changing experience or significant intentionality, our, our worldview tends to pretty much stay the same, acting more like a, an echo chamber, you know, reinforcing itself by interpreting all new incoming data, all information and experiences through the lens that we already have. Spoiler alert, that's why all your social media rants aren't changing your friends' minds and why theirs aren't changing yours. You know, for the last two months, we've been asking what it looks like to live in the bullseye of a Jesus-centered life, to build our lives around following Jesus rather than simply functioning within a fixed religious framework. Essentially, we've been deconstructing what it means to be Christian in an attempt to reconstruct what it looks like to follow Jesus. Now, trying to move beyond uh, the, the fixed, overly simplistic, black and white, in-out thinking, what we've been calling bounded set thinking, in favor of a more Jesus-centered approach to how we view everything from the Bible to sin and salvation to faith, God's will, and even building community. Basically, we've been taking a brick-by-brick -brick approach to building a Jesus-centered worldview drilling deep down into our understanding of the Bible in order to clarify the very foundation of our faith. 
have been challenging some long-held assumptions and ideas in order to emerge with a pure and simple devotion to the person of Jesus. As we've been doing this hard but important work of rebooting and reprogramming each of our own individual worldviews to become more Jesus-centered, the question that remains for us as we wrap up the series is, what was Jesus' worldview? Well, to start, just like we did with the series, Jesus' worldview was shaped by Scripture. But as Jeff Lockyer reminded us in week one, Jesus didn't view Scripture as some uh, rigid and restrictive set of religious rules to be followed, but as a living, divinely inspired narrative intended to center us on the bullseye of God's heart. His worldview was anchored in God's original design for humanity, uh, found on the very first page of the Bible, where we read, God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, God created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. God saw all that he had made and said it was very good. Jesus saw the world as God's good creation and the glory of God reflected in the very goodness of humanity, God's image bearers. Nobody. he also recognized the corrupting influence of sin. As Jeff Martins reminded us on week two, Jesus saw the human condition and how we, as the apostle Paul wrote, fall short of the glory of God, missing the mark or bullseye of a life of love. And seeing how generations of laws and leaders, prophets and priests, uh, sermons and sacrifices had failed to move humanity any closer to the bullseye of the glory of God. Jesus got, as John Hand reminded us on week three, that no simple, single, one-time decision uh, can actually remedy the issue. Salvation is a moment-by-moment lifestyle of what the Bible calls faithful devotion to the Lord. That devotion or faith, as Mandy Casper reminded us on week four, isn't some small, safe, static set of beliefs to be mastered but an invitation to enter humbly and honestly into the exciting expanse of mystery of God. A mystery that can't reduce God's will down to some, you know, pre-scripted, carefully controlled plan that we're supposed to robotically follow, but an invitation into a wide-open, liberating life of collaborating with Jesus to act and to will according to God's good purpose a purpose that gets lived out in a community called the church. Not some gatekeeping, finger-wagging cult of conformity, but a community that, as Leanne Friesen told us last week, uh, exists to encourage one another, to spur one another on towards the bullseye of a life of love. Everything Jesus did and taught flowed from this worldview. And as people were exposed to his unique perception of reality, they were astonished and amazed, saying we'd never heard anything like this. See, their worldview had been formed primarily by the religious leaders of their day, the Pharisees. Now, if you're new to the story of Jesus, the Pharisees are basically the primary antagonists in the stories of the gospel. And as such, they've earned a pretty bad reputation, but they weren't just bad people. Their worldview had been shaped by their own context in history. 
specifically the stories of how generations of God's people had been exiled from their homeland, Israel, and held in captivity by the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and by Jesus' time, the occupying forces of the Roman Empire. Israel had suffered immensely, and they saw that suffering as God's judgment for their spiritual failure. The Pharisees figured if we can get everybody to fall back in line, maybe the suffering and punishment will end. And so they enforced a strict religious adherence and exercised suffocating spiritual control over people to get everybody back inside the boundaries. And for good measure, they built a wall around the boundaries and fences around the wall. Over time, this boundary-set way of thinking became so entrenched in them that their, that their identity became all about preserving the purity of their religion. Jesus entered into their world with a view that threatened to disrupt everything that they'd built. See, instead of uh, maintaining their biblical interpretations, Jesus opened people's minds to new ideas and insights. Instead of uh, reinforcing and upholding their traditions and customs, Jesus publicly and purposely flouted them. Rather than reaffirming all the old commandments, Jesus had the audacity to give, you, give them a new one. You know, instead of polishing and preserving the boundaries, Jesus toppled their walls, tore down their fences, and rejected their restrictions. Rather than coming alongside them as ambassadors of, of religious preservation, Jesus emerged as an agent of spiritual progress. And nowhere is this seen more clearly than in a story Jesus told about a king representing God who gave some of his servants money to invest on his behalf. The first servant returned with a thousand percent profit. And the king responded by saying, well done, good and faithful servant. The second servant returned with 500% profit and got a similar response. But the third servant, the focal character of the story, he returns saying, Lord, I have successfully preserved the money you gave me. I wrapped it up in a napkin and I hid it away because I was afraid of you. Can you guess how the king responded to that servant? He calls him wicked and describes the investment in him as having been worthless. Friends, I want us to consider, as the parable intends, how we too let fear keep us in a state of just preserving what God has entrusted to us. Instead of investing in growing God's kingdom, how we hide away, you know, play it safe, uh, because we're afraid we might get it wrong. How many of us are actually out there actively working to earn kingdom income for our king? You know, not material wealth like in the story, but a prophet of spiritual progress, moving God's kingdom project forward. Now, if you've been reading through the Gospel of Mark with us over the last couple of months, uh, you've seen it's a pretty action-packed story. Like Jesus is on the move, uh, enlisting new recruits, uh, announcing the heaven's Im imminent arrival on earth. He's healing diseases, forgiving sins, pushing back against spiritual dark forces, reimagining our understanding of God, uh, extending the table of welcome to the previously excluded. He touches the untouchable, feeds the hungry, befriends the outcast, and commissions his apprentices to go and do the same. 
He exercises dominion over creation, overrides the laws of nature, and upends the social order. He describes the kingdom of God as a plant that grows, a loaf of bread that rises, a vineyard that yields a great harvest. He's constantly pointing forward, whether that's predicting his death, promising resurrection, or prophesying the coming destruction of the Jewish temple, which was the symbolic center of the previous era. If nothing else, Jesus emerges as a person of progress, as a disruptive agent of change, unsettling those who would seek to treat God like a fossil you dig up and put on display in a museum. Jesus is more interested in forging the future than preserving the past. He's on offense, not defense. And he invites his followers, us, to join in. What's wild is that in the years since, the church has often reflected more the heart of the Pharisees, you know, emphasizing the boundaries, preserving traditional views and values, stemming the flow of progress. Church, when did we decide that we were going to be the brake pedal of history? When Jesus had his foot so firmly pressed down on the gas? You know, I think like the Pharisees or like the third servant in the story, it's not that we're bad people. I think we're just maybe afraid, afraid to risk, afraid of change, afraid of the unknown, afraid to mess up or, or get it wrong, afraid to incur God's judgment. And so we revert back. We camp out on the old, safe and familiar, you know, finding our identity and being defenders of the faith as if God needed protectors rather than partners in reshaping the world. Now, this fear-based preservationist thinking, it creeps into other areas of our life as well. And you see it in the cult of youth, how we obsess over preserving our youthful looks rather than embracing the natural progression towards maturity and wisdom. We see it in how we idealize the early stages of romantic love, you know, bailing on any relationship that has the audacity to advance past the honeymoon stage rather than celebrating the, the beauty of relationships that have ventured beyond the shallow waters of infatuation into the deep blue sea of a love that has weathered storms and sustained through struggle and change. If you are a parent or a caregiver to young children, we see it in how we try to freeze things, you know, keep them from growing up too fast, try to preserve their innocence and keep them unspoiled from outside influences. And while those instincts are natural and even good, we can be so focused on preserving their innocence that we forget to guide their progress towards maturity. And when our kids do get older, you know, many parents have a hard time learning to relate differently to adult children because change in progress is uncomfortable and scary. I think we see it in our spiritual lives as well. You know, maybe you had a, a really great start to your spiritual journey. Uh, maybe you had a, a great Sunday school teacher or youth group or a life-changing missions trip or summer camp. You know, those spiritual highs, those mountaintop experiences can be really powerful, especially in the early stages of our spiritual development. But some of us never seem to mature beyond them, only to discover far too late that Sunday school answers and summer camp highs can't sustain us through the valleys of life where a lot of the real growth happens. We need to move beyond spiritual adolescence to become mature, faithful followers of Jesus and committed contributors to his church. 
And some of you have done that. In your adult life, you've actually experienced amazing experiences uh, with God, either here at Southridge or maybe somewhere you were previously. But since then, things have changed. You know, when, when we've experienced God in powerful ways at some point in our life, it can become really tempting to want to hold on and preserve those same methods. You know, we can become resistant to change, become immovable and unmoved, unable to see the beauty in a new way for a new season. And folks, I get it. You know, the ways God worked in the past were great. That was a little Tony the Tiger maybe, but the ways God worked in the past was great, but that's not necessarily the way God is moving in the present. You know, there, the, the Bible is filled with stories of people who expected God to move in familiar ways they'd previously experienced, only to miss what God did next. To them, God says, like he did through the prophet Isaiah, do not call to mind the former things or consider the things of the past. Behold, I'm going to do something new. Now, that's not to say that everything that's behind us is bad or that all traditions are worthless. We stand on the shoulders of spiritual giants who have handed down to us a treasure trove of well-worn pathways, practices, and traditions that have sustained people of faith for centuries, many of which we're learning to incorporate into our context. You know, we would ignore the past to our peril. But we need to evaluate our traditions, not based on our preferences, but how they are continually shaping a greater degree of Christ-likeness in us. Uh, similarly, I'm not trying to suggest that all change is positive. You know, we live in a time when every single new idea immediately becomes the universally adopted new normal. And uh, if you can't get with the program, you're either a dinosaur or maybe a bigot. Our world is changing faster than it ever has in history, and we need wisdom in this age, perhaps like never before, to be able to see that not all movement is progress. But all progress requires movement. We can't stand still. See, the kind of movement and progress we're talking about, it's the kind of change that gets us closer to Christ-likeness. That's what we mean by spiritual progress. Because the church of Jesus is a movement, not a museum. Our mission isn't to sit still until Jesus comes back for us, or, or worse, to move things backward to some misguided idea of the good old days. Our mission, our calling, is to be God's agents of restoration in the world, energized by the Holy Spirit to fulfill, finally, that creation mandate that God gave us at the beginning, the one we read earlier, you know, to be fruitful and multiply. And to be clear, that's not just talking about procreation. It's talking about progressing the work of creation, to create to improve, to spark beauty, truth, and goodness in our world, to advance God's kingdom through compassion and innovation, justice and joy, widening the welcome and spreading wisdom and love, to remake the world according to the glory of God and carry the human story from the garden of God in Genesis to the shining city of God at the end of Revelation. Now, 20 years ago, I lived in Calgary, Alberta. I was working as a 
young pastor at a brand new church, and I'll never forget this one workshop I went to for church leaders. It was put on by two guys from Australia. You know, they'd landed at the airport in Calgary and had driven out to our meeting spot, beautiful spot, you know, in the, in the shadows of the Rocky Mountains. And as they introduced themselves, they described their drive out, you know, as they winded through the vast Alberta farmland. And they asked a question. They asked, you know, why do Canadian farmers build these extensive fences around their farms. It must be so expensive. Well, someone in our group who knew the answer said, well, it keeps the livestock from wandering off their property onto someone else's farm. You know, the fences keep everything where it's supposed to be. I'll never get, forget their reaction. In Australia, they said, our farmers don't build fences. They dig wells at the center of their property. You see, the animals will never wander far from a reliable source of water. They know that it's what keeps them alive. Folks, do we know what keeps us alive spiritually? Because it's sure not the fences that we build to keep everything where it belongs. Those fences, far from keeping us alive, are actually keeping us from the life that God created us for. A life that can only be found in the well at the center, where the living water flows and never runs dry. The very source of life itself, Jesus around here, we see the church as a community of people who hang out at the well. A subversive society within society who harness the presence of Jesus to turn graves into gardens, turn mourning into dancing, dry deserts of depression into rivers of joy, who with kindness and compassion push back against selfishness and greed. It's not some static or stagnant thing. It's a movement. It's about growth. That's why we're not the church we were a decade ago and why we're not the church we're going to be a decade from now. See, I believe we've always been at our best here when we're taking the next hill because we're not interested in handing the next generation a, a clean, uh, well-preserved, still-in-the-package, nothing-ventured-nothing-gained kind of church or faith. We want to stand before our king one day and receive the well-done, good, and faithful servant that comes not from hiding the gospel in a napkin or burying it in the ground to hand it back to God unrisked and well-preserved, not by playing it safe or staying within the lines, but because we took our shot, because we risked everything, investing all we had in returning a worthy return of investment on the one and only life that God gave us. To become the kind of community that our friend Greg Paul described as instead of spending most of our time and resources on a razzle-dazzle Sunday morning service, together we'd heal the sick, feed the hungry, embrace the unwelcome, set prisoners free, restore the dignity of people who've been humiliated, flip the tables of oppressive economics, offer forgiveness instead of seeking vengeance, sacrifice rather than protecting ourselves, and much, much more. And as an aside, if that vision for the church excites you, I want to encourage you to go four for four the next four Sundays as we launch into our annual Hope Live series. It's going to be great. But as we wrap up this series in our time together, we need to appreciate that living with a Jesus-centered worldview means aiming everything we are at Jesus-centered spiritual progress, being fruitful in our faith, multiplying the mission of God, resisting static and motionless faith, and instead joining the movement towards the bullseye, Jesus. 
Together we can bend the arc of history towards life, love, and justice. Remembering that the church is God's plan A for the world. And there is no plan B. So let me ask you again. Is the world around us getting better or worse? I, I suspect that the answer to the question depends entirely on how we respond. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this whole journey that we've been on and for the invitation to come and build our lives on you. Jesus, help us to have the courage to overcome our fears, to even be willing to take great risks, to be able to become more Christ-centered and Christ-like in our lives and as a church. Would you do this great work in us? We need you so desperately, God. Amen.